Good. Rajivji, I have a quick question to start off with. Okay. So I had started reading the book, and there's this one term that really struck me, which is aesthetization of power. Um, uh, it's a very interesting term and uh, how it's being used to um, portray um, Sanskritam, in, in fact. Because being a Sanskritam student, that struck me because it's, we are not really taught in those lines at all. Can you uh, briefly talk about that? Okay. Said, uh, let me repeat the question. Yeah. Uh, in the book, uh, there's, a, there's a whole section called the aestheticization of power. Aesthetics, aestheticization, uh, aestheticization of power. Now, this is a big theory of his uh, on how and why Sanskrit spread without violence to so much of Asia. Uh, there was no army spreading it. It was not part of religious conversion. How did it spread? So, he wants to look for a reason which shows some domination, some power game, some oppression done peacefully, but with an exploitation kind of point of view. So this theory of aestheticization of power says that, uh, first of all, the theory was developed by uh, Marxists to explain Nazism. How did Nazism start? Why was there Nazism? You know, according to, the, according to Marxism, when the, when the poor people, when the proletariat are poor, when the masses are poor, they will have a revolution, overthrow the elite. That's what Marxist revolution is supposed to be. And indeed, Lenin did that in Russia. Lenin started this revolution, a, a communist revolution, to, uh, you know, as exactly uh, the communist, uh, communist theory said, a class struggle where the peasants would overthrow the elite. So in, in Germany, why didn't the same thing happen? That was the question they asked. When there was a depression in Germany, why didn't it result in communism? Why did it result in Nazism instead? Because Nazism is not popular public. Nazism is one elite replacing the other. So why is it that in Russia, the, the masses revolted and took over, but in Germany, that didn't happen, and one new kind of elite, the Nazis, took over the, from the previous kind of elite. Why that? So they, they were very depressed because it seemed that Marxism had failed. Because if Marxism is valid, then it should be able to explain. So they developed a Marxism 2.0, which is called the Frankfurt School, because developed by people over there. And this Frankfurt, this Marxism 2.0 said that Nazis succeeded because they aestheticized the power. Meaning, meaning, this is very important. Meaning that uh, we are going to have power over you, but we'll do it in such a beautiful way that we'll make you feel proud. You'll have national pride. You will feel that there's this great march, there's this band, and there is theater about the greatness of Germany. So chauvinism on display. Uh, things that will make, you, make the Germans feel proud of their history. You know, proud of their history, that we are, we are the greatest and all that stuff. So aestheticization of power means that you instill in the people a kind of a very, with a sense of aesthetics and beauty and glamour, a kind of a sense of uh, that they are the ones who are, get, who are powerful, okay, when actually the ruling elite are controlling everything. So it's a, it's a way to deceive people by giving them a false sense of power and hope so they don't revolt against you even if they're hungry. So, even, so you see, it's a very clever, so it's a very good theory. It means that if all you guys are hungry and I'm exploiting you, According to communism, you should come and overthrow me. But if I'm a brilliant aestheticization of power man, 
I can actually turn your poverty into glory and I can turn it into, you know, we have the Ramayan, we have the Mahabharat and we will chant Yagna and we will be so happy because we're all chanting Yagna and we're all becoming gods. I will, I will hypnotize you in such a way that rather than you overthrowing me, you'll actually love me. So Pollock took this theory which had been built to show why Nazism succeeded and he applied it to the success of Sanskrit. This is a very brilliant man because he came up with a, he, he adapted one theory for a different context. Okay. And his book, The Language of the Gods, most of it is on this theory of how uh, Sanskrit was the language where the king could be, king could do the jagna and impress everybody. A king, then they would perform Ramayana, Ramayana, Ram Leela, so that everybody feel like, you know, we are, we are this great, we are these deities and divine and we are part of divinity and we are all these great Hindus and all that and that way they can remain poor, you can keep exploiting them and keep oppressing them and you can keep doing that because they will be so much intoxicated with this nasha, this intoxication of, uh, you know, feeling that way. So his whole thesis, Indians feel very happy that, oh, he praises Sanskrit for spreading without violence, sir. I said, yeah, it spread without violence because it was a system of exploitation. He said, no, sir, but he said that Ramayana, Ramayana was very nicely used, beautifully used. I said, yes, that beautiful use of Ramayana is called aestheticization of power. So our people don't understand the layers of what the logic is. This is, this is a very, uh, I call it a brilliant theory. I mean, I don't agree with it. I think it's very kind of mischievous and subversive. But it's brilliance from their point of view, how to subvert you. So what I did is, I said I will apply the aestheticization of power theory to Pollock. Okay, so I have a section here saying reversing the gaze on Pollock. Because he says aestheticization of power means that you have a narrative which suits you, but the people are going to like it as if it suits them. That's one requirement. Second is the Brahmin is the intellectual but he is funded and sponsored by the king to do all this. And the third is that after doing all this, it's the king who keeps his power. So I said you got all three ingredients because you got this narrative of the Indian left and the exploitation and whatnot and you have sold it to the people, a lot of people in India that this is the narrative for liberation of India. So all these Indian left that you are feeding with a narrative of the liberation of India from the, from the clutches of Hinduism is sort of this narrative like the, you are saying the kings used to use of Ramayana and so on. So this is your narrative. Second, Murti is funding you like you are saying the Raja used to fund the Brahmins. So you are the new Brahmin who is getting this funding and Murti and these people are the new like the Rajas, they are funding you. Third, in exchange for doing all this work, you are bringing glory to the Murtis. They can sit on this, uh, uh, this particular, you know, uh, kind of a, whatever you want to call it, a board here and a whatever deal over there, they can get more elitist, more prestigious and so on. So this nexus between the Raja and the Brahmin as the intellectual is now the nexus between the funding source, the Indian who is funding you and you as the intellectual and this idea of uh, aestheticizing this new kind of a power with the people so they are all very happy and you can see the media in India is very happy with all this that these guys are doing. So this is the Pollock aestheticization of power using exactly his brilliant theory back on him. So um, we have a lot of questions. Let's see how many we can go through. Uh, so this is from... After this, we can also have an informal 
Right. So there'll be a book signing. So the books are available. You can purchase them, and there'll be a book signing uh, session. So you can also meet with uh, Rajiji after that. So um, from Rajat Talak, who's a PhD student at MIT, uh, is escapism inherent to our Sanskriti? What is the Vedantic response? That's the first question. Uh, the other questions. Academia, the way you describe, sounds like a very literate, a sophisticated mafia or cartel. What are some of the lessons to be learned to get rid of such behavior in intellectual discourse? And the third question is, doesn't Pollock apply this political philology to theories such as Aryan invasion or the proselytizing missionaries or the Afro-Dalit projects? Uh, the escapism, you see, th this idea that uh, because there is an ultimate reality, therefore the provisional reality is useless, is completely against Vedanta. You have to live the dharma. Otherwise, otherwise uh, if I'm a doctor, whether I give you 10 milliliters, 10 milligrams I'm supposed to or 1000 milligrams, who cares, couple of shunya here and there, who cares. And whether you live or die, you're still, uh, still mithya anyway, uh, and you're all atma anyway. So whether I'm corrupt or not, why does it matter? It's all corruption, all, all very vivarika, it doesn't matter, it's all, you know, mithya. The fact that we took birth, the fact that there is a prarab, that I have taken birth and I have to go through this, I, it means that I have some responsibilities. That is why you have yam and niyam, do's and don'ts, you have to do. That is why there is dharma and adharma, that is why there is a war. That is the whole reason for the Gita. Because it is the early Arjuna who is confused with all this logic, who is saying, why do I need to do this? The early, early Arjuna in the Gita is the escapist. And the whole idea of the 18 chapters is to tell him, you got to do all this. So whatever you learn in the Gita uh, is basically to avoid the escapism. Uh, that argument you have to use today, the Kurukshetra is this. What we are talking about is the Kurukshetra. So in this Kurukshetra also you have to face your responsibility, protect the dharma. And you cannot be escapist because ultimate reality and all that stuff. So ultimate reality is a view that a Rishi has when he stayed, when he's achieved a certain state of consciousness. The view we have where we are not in that state has duality, has lots of things in it, has do's and don'ts, has things I have to, I have to pay my taxes, I have to drive on the correct side of the road, I can't harm people. I mean, all those things are very important, they're part of our teachings. It's not that Vedanta is telling you to disobey all that. So a person who cannot, who says that uh, a Vedanta, because of its non-duality, means that you don't have to do anything, got it completely wrong. Um, so next question. So I'll go to the third one. Okay, the third one. Um, the third doesn't one. Pollock apply this political philology to theories such as Aryan invasion or the proselytizing yeah. missionaries? Okay. Or the he, would, he would apply it to Aryan invasion, but not to the proselytizing, because they'll apply it where it suits him. Uh, if, you, if he applies it to the Aryan invasion, he'll say these dominant Aryans, you know, the politics was to dominate and conquer and destroy the in, indigenous people, uh, the Dravidians, and then create all this new Hinduism stuff and all that. So political philology would fit his, fit the Aryan theory of domination. Now, on the other hand, if I were to say, well, well, let's apply this political philology to the dominant church because they are the multinational, the largest multinational the world has had in the last thousand years. You know, church is the largest multinational. If you look at how much property they have, it's more than any other corporate entity. Or if you look at worldwide property, if you look at how many evangelists there are, it's more than the sales force of any company. If you look at the trillions of dollars more, so you know they are they are the number one, and they've been around for more than a thousand years. So if you want to uh, apply political philology to deconstruct them, I mean that would be uh, something that these guys don't want to do. They don't want to do that. 
So uh, they're taking particular uh, issues, framing it in a way that suits their ideology, and not other issues because it would not suit their ideology. So the problem you, the questioner has raised very nicely is that this business of political philology is being applied very selectively where it suits them. Now you could apply political philology where Hindus are being, uh, Hindus are being uh, discri discriminated against. You could do it in Kashmir, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh. You could say let's apply political philology and see who's being oppressed and who's uh, dominant, who has the power. But that's not the kind of thesis you will see in South Asian studies in this country. Uh, conferences. One of the groups, one of the units is called South Asian Studies and they have a few panels. It was always about Hindus being the bad guys. But there was not a, not a single one on what happened to the Hindus as the underdogs in Pakistan. Although it says South Asian and Pakistan part of that. And in the year 2001, after 9-11, because it happened in September, the American Academy of Religion Conference was in November. I wrote to the President and the Vice President an Indian at that time, an Indian lady at that time, saying that this year we ought to have a panel on Taliban. And they said, no, 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 we can't, we can't, we can't, no, 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 we can't, because you know they, would want, they didn't want to be accused of Islamophobia. I said, if they, if you have, your group is called religion in South Asia. Probably the most important religious thing in South Asia that has happened right now is Taliban, the world ought to know, you are the scholars, you should be deconstructing that, analyzing that. And nobody, they didn't want to touch it, you see. Because for them it's more important to have a panel on some, you know, that uh, four nuns got raped somewhere, which didn't even happen later on, we found out. Or some, you know, Brahmin did this to somebody. So they're always into that kind of a sensational, what I call Hindu phobia. And where Hindus are the victims, I don't see the same interest from their side. The next question is, what is a good book for English-speaking American Hindus to learn about Vedanta and Vedantism? See, I learned, uh, I mean, I learned Ramakrishna Mission books. Uh, Swami Chinmayman taught teaching Gita. A lot of uh, Sri Aurobindo informed me. But ultimately, the deepest knowledge I was able to get was from a living guru. And so my suggestion would be you've got to find the living guru. Because the living guru will go take you beyond text. This pus my guru used to say, Pustaka Kira, bookworm. That don't become one of those. You're not, there were no iPods in those days, otherwise I'm sure the guru would have said, don't be an iPod, just keep chanting. Uh, but try to internalize, try to be, put it in your body, in your being and live that life. So how to, how to implement, uh, so that it becomes part of your cognition. So when you are cognizing this person, that person, this is a friend, this is an opponent, this one is against me, this one is, uh, you know, for me, uh, good things, bad things, how to cognize all of that with a Vedantin perspective, with a Drishti, that is something that uh, you have to go through your whole life all the, all the times and only a guru can teach you that because I don't think texts can teach you that. Texts can give you a working knowledge to be a scholar, write some papers and so on. Anubhuti is important. So I, I think you have to, uh, Anubhav has to, you have to have that Anubhav experience yourself and that is what, our, what is unique about our tradition is the phenomenon of living masters, gurus, who have achieved this enlightenment and this is an oral transmission to somebody and it's a very intimate thing and, and it's like a private coach, you know, you want to learn math or you want to learn, the, you know, tennis or something, you get a coach and the, this, this guru is a private coach, a one-on-one -on -one coach and that's the best way I think to learn.
Uh, the next question is from Ashish uh, from MGH. Western Indology is fueled by a lot of private, government, and even Indian funding. In India, there is no funding for Sanskrit or Dharmic studies. Uh, when we fund so many PhDs in engineering, why can't the government put money into Dharmic studies? I feel once we start pumping money, the wheel would start, uh, start rolling. Okay. It can also work against us because a uh, lot of Western Orientalists, Western Indologists are dying to start to see the start of uh, religious studies in India, Vedic studies, Dharma studies, because then they will get hired and it will be their version coming into India. So, for instance, you go to Ashoka University in Gurugaon and they are very proud that they are one of the first few doing a, uh, having a department of comparative religion. But Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Lott, uh, one of the guys I mentioned in my previous book, uh, Indra's Net, uh, he is a very nasty guy criticizing Hindu, uh, you know, Hindutva, all that, saffron. He is the one in charge. Uh, he is the one in charge at that place. Uh, we have uh, Vinita from, uh, from that university who is sitting here. So I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> Vinita is on our side, but she is having to deal with these people. So I, 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 she, I'm, she's very wise. She just wants to keep her, keep not, say, not say too much. I won't put you on the spot. But the fact is, uh, the Westerners that we are con concerned about are very smart, infiltrating. They are on the prowl looking for these openings. So what is happening is, we think that anyone who walks in with a dhoti and a tilak and who can chant Sanskrit and say namaste, namaste and tell me great things, he, if he's white skin, we'll just get him in because he must be good for us. We haven't learned for in the last 200 years that that's exactly what the British were very good at. So, so the, the, the uh, huge career opportunity for the Sheldon Pollocks of the world is precisely where Indians who do not know enough about the Kurukshetra are desperate to fund and bring in the guy who talks the right things. That's why Rohan Murthy didn't think that he was doing anything wrong. He, he thought that by Indians funding, it will be good for India. He, that's what he thought. And we have several such other parallel examples going on where just throwing in money and just creating uh, new positions and new structures is actually making it worse. I got more people to fight now because this money is making these people rich. I have more, you know, well-endowed, well-funded opponents to argue with. So maybe this is a good uh, time to ask this question. So tell us the re uh, about the reason for this book, basically the Columbia chair and the Shingeri Peetam issue, probably. Yeah, the reason uh, for this book I wrote in the introduction is because uh, the Shingeri Mat, the Shingeri Peetam uh, was almost uh, it had almost closed a deal where Columbia University would have a Adi Shankara chair uh, under the, uh, the leadership of Sheldon Pollock. So one of his students would be given the chair and they would have total freedom and autonomy to decide the content and the interpretation because academic freedom says you should have that complete freedom. So they would in fact take the legacy and the teachings of Adi Shankara and the Shingeri Mutt and represent it in the United States and internationally funded by Indians. Indians would fund in the hope of uh, spreading the glory of our tradition, but give it to, giving, giving it to people who were not part of the tradition, who were not from the tradition. So that's the kind of risk I feel is happening, is that Indians are giving. You should either fund your subject matter expertise. So if you're an engineer, fund MIT's engineering department, because you know, then you, at least you know you can keep an eye on it. If you're a doctor, fund some medical thing. You know, so you are a businessman, fund some business school for Indian, Indian relations, Indian business. If you want to fund spirituality, sacredness, Vedas, this and that and that, 
you not you have to roll up your sleeves and get personally involved in auditing and monitoring everything those guys do and give yourself the right to rebuttal and respond that is what those are the kind of things i did through my infinity foundation 25 years ago and i did it for the first 10 years gave a lot of my money away i wish i hadn't but i learned a lot from it because i realized that if you are really micromanaging what they are doing you will realize that that is actually counterproductive i learned a lot i learned how to where the problems are and how to fight back because i was so engaged but most of these people i don't think rohan murthy is reading what he they are producing i don't think that i think it's not, it's a matter of write a check become glorious famous get articles written become very popular it's not about really understanding i i, I doubt that he has taken a a translation to alternative indian uh, scholars and said please find please i'm asking i'm paying you to do due diligence please find do a critical analysis i don't think he has had that done but as a software guy you do that when you have an operating when you have a piece of software done you get people another team to do find bugs in it you do a review you do a design analysis you find out what all what all could have been done better that is not an insult that's how you improve the system so the same way a draft of a translated work before it is published should have been sent to alternative people who are not part of the western academy should have gone to some traditional mathas and said you know this guy is translating ramayan you are the ramayan expert you are the ramayan bhakts why don't you tell me whether it you agree with it and produce a report and i'll pay you for it with the money you should do that i already have one person who just doesn't want to be named and i i'm trying to convince him he is a well known indian in a particular language and he's so upset that in this murti library that same text has been translated by these guys in a way that he th- he sees every page i can find many errors so i said why don't you go public and he doesn't want to he doesn't want to because this is part of our problem that we, we, these people are not wanting to be in the face and bring it out yeah so this is the problem of uh, blindly funding and thinking that with money you can solve problems you can make the things worse um i know you had touched upon this in your talk itself and uh, this is from ravi why do western leftist schools don't um deconstruct china and chinese civilization like they do with india and indian civilization they do but the chinese give it back really hard uh, you ask uh, you're in massachusetts near harvard so you ask the tibetan people the tibetan lobby is strong all over the united states ask the tibetan lobby why what is what is what happens when a chinese uh government uh, or people or chinese scholars come and do some kind of a seminar or an event on china in harvard what happens to you guys why don't you guys protest they tell you that we always try to protest sometimes we are successful most of the time the campus security will tell us not to we are out we are kept out and if we make too much noise we are thrown out and we are not brought in next time so there's a in the chinese government puts these conditions that you're not going to have a panel where the chinese person is going to come and a counter position is going to be from the tibetan side on the same panel you're not going to have that but indian ambassador and indian thinkers and indian scholars are very very happy to go to these panels and there is a kashmiri separatist sitting there and there is a khalistani sitting there and it's considered to be oh, oh you know we are democracy we do all this kind of stuff there was one uh, uh mr rath he was the consul general of india in new york about uh, 10 15 years ago he was the only person who took this matter seriously so when he when he's appointed in new york he somebody told him to see me so he called me and said i want to come and spend a day with you you brief me on all these things going on because i need to be sensitized 
Other than that, nobody from the Ministry of External Affairs bothered to listen to any of this stuff I have to say. But he spent a whole day with me. So I told him that this is the whole disease of South Asian studies throughout the United States. This is, this is it's infested with these kinds of ideologies and you should be careful. So next time he was going to, he was in his limo on his way to Harvard and he was halfway there. And he just called me and said, ha, huh, by the way, you'll be very happy they're doing this great South Asia some con event and conference and I'm the main speaker and all that. So I just wanted to run it by you. What do you think? I said, first tell me who else is on the panel. So he said, okay, I'll get you back to you. So he called me back with some names. So I said, look, this fellow is known Khalistani and I told him the whole thing about him. This fellow is a Kashmir separatist. Uh, he's the son of this uh, Ethan Allen or, you know, uh, yeah. And uh, his brother died, another one, uh, one of, one, no, he's the uh, Ethan Allen head and his, one of his sons died fighting the Kashmir, uh, Indian army in Kashmir, very proudly on the website and all that. I said, I said, they, it's a, it's a ambush. You, you're, you're walking into an ambush and you're, you and your driver have been sitting there to make a fool out of you. I mean, either you should have all the answers, which I mean, I don't mind if they want to ask me questions, I'll also give answers. But you should anticipate who these guys are. And he was so scared I, and he, he called Delhi and he called all these kind of places and nobody, nobody, nobody in the Indian government has a think tank to uh, filter, to do due diligence on who is this guy, who is that guy, even now they don't have it. Because sometimes they call me and say, what do you think of so and so, the president is going to give you an award and I, I said, look, you know, president wants to give him an award, I can't stop it, but the point is this is what you have to know about him. You know? So this Mr. Rath, I must say to his credit, he almost reached Harvard and he made a U-turn and went back after what he heard and he called him sick and said, I can't go. Other than that, one instance, I don't know of any instance where the Indian government has actually acted in a way, uh, the way Chinese government would act. So it's not that they're they're, they don't uh, knock down uh, China. The point is that uh, Chinese government know how to hit back. So we should not expect that the opposing side will change. It's a free world. Everybody has a right to be combative intellectually against others, that, that is going to continue and expand further. It's just that we need to have our home team to fight for us. The next question is um, basically uh, misusing Sanskrit words and uh, misunderstanding or biased uh, understanding. Um, how did Hitler came to use the word Aryan and how did he come to accept swastik as a symbol? So the, the uh, uh, Arya is a word, there is no Aryan. Arya, a quality of a good quality of nobility, uh, not a race of people. It's like you say good singer, that doesn't mean there's a race of people like that. Or you say good, uh, you know, uh, a, a noble man. Anyone of any race could be noble. So Arya was a nobility. It is an adjective. It is not a noun referring to a race. Um, in fact, in the uh, in Buddhism, the four noble truths. You all heard of the four noble truths. Uh, you look in the original, they are called the four Arya truths. Obviously, the Buddha was not talking about these are the truths for the Aryan race. Okay. Now, if you tell that to the left, say, because they don't want to hit Buddhism, so you want to say, okay, if Aryan means race, then Buddhist, Buddha was a racist, because his theory was called the four Aryan truths. But it, there were four Arya truths. There were four Arya truths in the original. Okay. So, that and many other examples will tell you it is not the term defining a race of people. So uh, that and swastika and many other things. Uh, Sheldon Pollock has a theory 
in a in a article called deep orientalism which i have refuted here he has a theory that uh, all the hatred violence against jews all the uh, oppressiveness uh, it came from sanskrit to the nazis okay uh, because in in the sanskrit these arguments are very well made why this should be done and so it was a very good uh, argument very it logically supported what the nazis ended up doing so it's like sanskrit origins of holocaust kind of is what he writes in a paper called deep orientalism please look that up if i could intervene for a minute in fact united states supreme court in 1920 gave a judgment that the people who are below intelligent level than average and many other criteria should not be allowed to have children mm. yes. this actually was sanctified by united states supreme court judgment so yeah. i wonder if that had origin in in sanskrit also yes 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 <laughs> good point good point so you see the so hitler the nazism did not take ideas from sanskrit they took a distorted idea they took, they distorted so there's a big difference between you know uh, saying i'll take your idea and do something bad and accuse you then you get accused that uh, you sourced it versus that i actually distorted i actually twisted and shifted your idea and then i did something bad so the real reason is nothing to do it starts 100 years before hitler you should start a story in the beginning the discovery that uh, sanskrit was very close to european languages was very well received by germans in particular because they were looking for a prehistory for themselves the Brit- every major country in europe had old narrative about its glory which they taught to their children to be proud so the french were the successors of the renaissance the great renaissance they were the current successors so that's what they taught that they teach the whole history of the ancient stuff and all that you know latin and all that stuff and then it comes to renaissance and we the french people are the successors of that that was a grand narrative the english taught we are the empire that's who we are the sense of self is we are the empire so like that spain had you know great history of the sailing and discovery america all that kind of stuff they could talk about so germany had nothing germans were known in european textbooks as barbarians you know that germans were known in the uh, until around 1800 they were taught in german textbooks that history is history of barbarians the people who had been destructive they really had no past of glory to create a unified germany out of many small nations out of many small kingdoms required a narrative exactly like india needs a grand narrative to be together we have we better have one so to create that grand narrative there was a lot of struggle going on are we are we christian are we uh, who are we is it racial is it religious narrative but we need a unifying narrative for germany and that is when this whole thing was introduced that you know what we are the sanskrit people because it's very close to our language so we must have been those people it couldn't have been those indians you know how the heck could they have done all this all those texts and all the great things came out of our ancestors and now we know our prehistory we have a grand narrative so to give the german people an ancient grand narrative the appropriation of sanskrit was a very important device so this you have to understand i've explained this in uh, breaking india and place other places so the creation of germans patriotism chauvinism back in 1800s this is a century before hitler starts with this appropriation misappropriation of uh, of sanskrit and sanskrit texts and we glorify them because they also praised it 
but they praise it as their past. They praise it, it's like I steal your stuff and I keep praising it as something my grandfather did. You know, that painting I actually took from your house, but I have called it my grandfather's painting. He did it. So obviously I'll praise it. Right? So the, the praise is, you have to understand, the praise comes from where? Okay? So this whole German Indology uh, is, is based on that. So having, and then certain things would not fit. How to, how to fit the religious ideas with Christianity could not be done. So this is a 60, 70, 80 years of debate among German Indologists on what do we do about the religious ideas. We, we love the poetry. We love the science. We love the mathematics. There is astronomy. You know, there are so many great things. It must be our ancestors have done all that. Okay. So we, we should figure out that this Aryan homeland was somewhere in the, you know, Europe or wherever it was. Okay, that's where our ancestors came from. So we want to co-opt and appropriate and claim this as our heritage. But what to do with this religious conflict with Christianity because there is no mention of this Bible stuff. So then uh, 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 one of the guys comes up with this idea that we'll take the tribes of that the, the, the uh, uh, sons of, uh, uh, you know, uh, this guy, the huh? Noah. The sons of Noah, this is also in Breaking India, the sons of Noah, you know, so they went in this direction, that direction, so one of those went and became the Indians. And so we'll try to bring them as part of the biblical, we'll make them part of the biblical stuff. Now that didn't fit because the dates wouldn't fit, so then they started fabricating these dates that this had to have happened later, Vedas had to have happened after Noah's flood, all that stuff, you know. So it has to, everything has to fit, uh, so that uh, it, 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 their religion and philosophy kind of the global thing and under that various branches and Vedas can be one of those. That is the idea. So that way we can have, you can say that that is a distorted version. Then there is another debate. Okay, if this, uh, the religious part of the Vedas is sort of to be explained in that way, then do we, do we accept it as our cousins, that they are our cousins? Do we, do we accept it that they are not our cousins? Were they superior to us? Were they inferior? Again, many Germans taking different sides. Many Germans taking different sides on the relationship of the spiritual side of the Vedas and Christianity, many of them. And one of them was that basically when our ancestors took the Vedas to India from Germany, along the way it got corrupted and distorted and so now what those guys got is that religion is not a valid one, but originally it was Christianity. But then that wouldn't fit because Jesus' dates are not older than Vedas, how can you make that happen? So this gymnastics was going on. This gymnastics was going on and then, uh, so what, because what the Germans wanted and what they wanted to reject were two different things. What they wanted to accept was language is ours and the beauty and the poetry and the science and the mathematics, everything that is useful is ours. But the reli anything religious wise that contradicts Christianity is somebody else contaminated. So now with these, these parameters for research, whoever is funding that research, with these parameters, you've got to come up with a solution. So every German coming up with theory after theory, and in, in uh, Breaking India, I've given you a list of several of these. Uh, there was this uh, Frederick Schlegel, Augustus Schlegel, uh, many of these uh, people were there. Hegel was there, uh, involved in this game of uh, interpreting India vis-a-vis -vis Germany. So this is a hundred-year story that goes on, and it's got distortion after distortion built in. So th this habit of taking what works, symbols, uh, language, you know, words here and there, 
to create a kind of a portfolio of your own greatness and your own great narrative is the project to build Germany. From the early 1800s to the uh, uh, early 1900s, early mid 1900s, that has been Germany's nation building project. So you have to understand that. And that's something Indians haven't done. We have to, we have to stop this glorifying of Max Miller. When they were celebrating his 100th anniversary or something in Delhi, you know, I wrote to them saying, Array, you've got this many, many days of, uh, uh, you know, tribute, all the Indian ministers and all this, all this good scholar, every one of them going and writing, the, making this big speech on the greatness and we are so indebted to him. He did translation of about 50 volumes, you know, and of course, Sheldon Pollock will do 500. So he'll be like 10 times Max Miller. So uh, we are grateful to those guys. I wrote that there should be some critical analysis. I mean, he did several good things. But he put in the place the Aryan theory, the first prominent scholar to develop the idea of the Aryan race and the Aryan invasion was Max Miller. And we, we, so when we are celebrating his 100th anniversary, we should also reflect with honesty and criticism, you know, what are some of the problems he put in place. But nobody wanted to hear that. This happened like 15, 20 years ago, whenever they were doing his uh, uh, centenary. Um, just a few more questions. So, uh, do you see India would or maybe it is not centenary, maybe it's 150 years. It was some kind of a anniversary of uh, of Max Miller. Okay. So, do you see India would make study of Sanskrit mandatory in school? The, your opinion? That's the question. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think that more than just the language, uh, we should study. My relationship with Sanskrit is mantra. I, I practice mantra. I understand. I want to. Exp I want to take a mantra and really get into it. Take me a many long time and really feel it, embody it, experience it, see its effects. So to me, the Sanskriti part of Sanskrit is more important. And then the the uh, the, the philosophy contained in it, the non-translatables. So to me, if you if somebody just says they're speaking English all the time, I would say that okay, take these uh, 50 or 100 non-translatables. And that Sanskrit word, make it part of your English vocabulary. Don't translate Atman as soul. Don't. Just say Atman all the time. And you can keep speaking English, but use that word. Yeah? So if you, like we don't translate yoga as exercise or gymnastics or something. We say yoga. So similarly, you can, you can add large vocabulary of Sanskrit non-translatables to the English-speaking people. And that way, even though the rest of their vocabulary is English and they're speaking English, they become Sanskritized. We can even Sanskritize English by doing that. We can Sanskritize English by doing that. So we need a multi-pronged multi attack. So there will be some who will become Sanskrit speakers. There will be some who will be highly Sanskritized in their thinking and practice of mantra. And they may speak some other language but highly Sanskritized. You see? So I think the, uh, the government needs to think of it in that way. Uh, the next question is, would greater force is the right approach to counter the terrorism we are facing today? What is your view on this? And can non-violence... force? A greater force. Okay. Okay, I don't know what kind of force, but greater force. Um, so what is your view on this? And can non-violence, I guess they are referring to the term um, ahimsa, solve the serious problem? See, ahimsa does not mean non-violence. Ahimsa means... Uh, himsa, himsa means harming. It doesn't have to be physically violent. Even uh, uh, converting somebody's culture, you're harming him. So ahimsa is non-harming. So first of all, let's be clear on that. Yeah. So it's not only physical violence that is being uh, that's the issue, but harming a person, including uh, harming his reputation or 
or uh, you know harming destroying his culture destroying taking away his money making him poor all those are also himsa so ahimsa is the opposite of that now ahimsa is minimizing the harm among the choices available so if somebody is going to shoot 100 people should we kill this man yeah so a narrow view would say you can't because you have to have ahimsa but a global view would say you're optimizing harm you're minimizing the harm by taking one life and saving a hundred think of it that way so i would say if a person came and he's about to shoot a hundred people and you shoot him that is ahimsa because you have minimized the harm globally you've optimized you've optimized the global situation and in a narrow context you have to kill somebody in order to uh, minimize the harm to overall people otherwise you know uh, otherwise the whole gita and the whole mahabharat the whole lesson of uh, sri krishna will be wrong so uh, i i so i think if a terrorist has to be killed because he's about to blow up a whole city that is is within the doctrine within the idea of ahimsa it is the right thing to do so i i my my interpretation of ahimsa doesn't say unilaterally you just stop harming everybody in every way possible even if that decision leads to them causing more harm i don't you know like when you take antibiotics you are harming the bacteria you are when you uh, yeah you are you are harming bacteria when you eat an apple that apple has got life in it so you've done himsa to the apple so the question is that there are different kinds of harm to different at different levels different scales and you are making a choice which minimizes the harm among the choices available so there's a question with a couple of sub questions from this um no sir my name is praveen uh, it's pleasure to be here thanks for enlightening us today so i've been reading some reports and in this particular report that i read i would like to call it a report from hell Uh, which depicts india in a really bad light it's it's a project that's titled armed conflict resolution and people's rights it's from the ha school of business university of berkeley it's one of those western indologist projects that you might term it as in in brief this is how they summarize india every street corner is littered with raped and mutilated bodies of dalits and muslims every second hindu male is a rapist and every hindu organization is a genocidal organization and the third thing they say is the primary occupation of indian army is to work in a nazi style and kill all indian muslims how do we camp combat these projects and organizations and build a brand new india see the thing is that's what i've been doing for 25 years full time as one man i can't solve this problem my problem is that my fellow hindus and my fellow indians are are inadvertently unconsciously sometimes supporting the other side by giving grants without having controls over how the money will be used uh and you know some of these scholars have double face they'll come when it's time to impress you and take your money they'll come and do do all the song and dance and bhakti and what not and then they are they will not necessarily do this bad thing on their own name but the name of students and other people they're part of both groups so money comes from here and then the work goes out there so my standard of fund, my approach would be that we should only intervene with fighters who will go out stick their neck out and fight for us so it's not good enough that you are not saying the bad things about us that's not good enough for me to fund you it's not good enough that you are writing a few good things about me it's not good enough 
it, what it, the minimum required is you're going to fight those guys. Stick your neck out and fight those guys. Name them, fight them. Stick your neck out and then, then you're worthy. That's the opening, that's the minimum requirement through the filtering process I would do. How much fighting against Hindu phobia have you done publicly? And not old 18th, 18th century, 19th century people who are dead, but living people like the ones you named. Okay. So, we got to train intellectual Kshatriyas. And intellectual Kshatriyas have to understand the Kurukshetra well. They have to be brave. They have to be willing to take the hit that they will be hit with. Inevitably, if you are fighting, you will be hit. And they should be thick skinned and take it. So, we need to tra train our own intellectual Kshatriyas to take on these kind of battles. That's my solution. And uh, I conduct uh, intellectual Kshatriya workshops. I did one in Bangalore. I did one in uh, you know, Toronto, a couple of other places. And I'm looking for people who want to learn the fighting spirit to combat all this stuff. Not with emotions, but with hard logic and good scholarship. So we need, uh, that's what it will take. You know, if you go and train, the first one who stuck his neck out is going to be the alone and going to be hit from everybody because he's alone. But when we have 10, when we have 50, we are supporting each other. It's less difficult for them to take us on. And then if we have 20 or 30, we'll soon have 200. So, what is my solution is, you, I'm starting something called the Intellectual Kshatriya Academy. I need funds, I need leadership, I need, I want it to be cloud-based to train people. And then using, you know, using conferences, video conferencing, have combats and learn. And then the next stage is after the person is strong, then go out and fight. But first you have to have tournaments inside. You know, like the IPL creates good teams. And then you can create good people and take them out. So we have to create this uh, culture of intellectual kshatriyata. Because right now, they, can, they do all this. The Sangh Parivar doesn't have the depth and the bandwidth to go back and hit them. They're not. They, they're not doing it. The religious organizations are either ducking, saying, oh, I don't want to be bothered, or maybe some isolated person here and there will do it. Okay. Uh, the Indian intellectual scholar who is inside the academy is uh, not very strong. He's, if he is, one or two of them are talking out, but they may not be that senior. They may not be that tough and original thinker. They can just re recycle. So, we do not really have our act together in a counter discourse uh, of, of our own intellectual kshatriyas. So, this is what I would like to do, but I can't do it alone. But in, in addition to that, the house has people like Anjana Chatterjee, Harsh Manda, those people are actually part of the committee. So the thing is, okay, so just for the video, uh, the, the organization you mentioned has some pretty, you know, leftist Indian, they are sequels. So, so they are, so listen, all the dirty work is being done by Indian only. In, under the British, 99% of the bullets fired by the British army against Indians were fired by, fought, fought by, were fired by Indian sepoys. You know that. Uh, Jaliawala Bagh, every one of those soldiers was an Indian. Uh, General Dyer was sitting in the, standing in the back just giving the command. The sepoys, uh, so now we have intellectual sepoys. You should call them that. I, I call them, I coined that term, I call them that. It hate, they hate it. They just, it, because you know, they are the guys who criticize the colonial sepoys. But I tell them that you are the sepoys now. Because now it is the intellectual Kurukshetra. You are the sepoys. So all the Indian sepoys have been sold out. They are living a good life. They are supposedly championing the poor and the downtrodden. But what are they doing about it? They are living in very cushy Ivy League places, jet set lifestyle. 
you think that Gayatri Spivak or Homi Bhabha or this Anjana Chatterjee or this Ananya Vajpayee, you think they are living like modest people? I mean, come on. So it's all like a, like a business. It's a brokerage. You know, you broker poverty and suffering and you go, you, go, you capture some data about some suffering, exaggerate it, put some spice on it and go and sell it to the sponsor in the West who can use it for something against India. So this is kind of a middleman business. And so you have to take on these people, name them, criticize them. And of course you are exposing yourself and of course they'll come after you. But that's part of what a Kshatriya has to be able to do. Uh, I guess you have probably answered the next question. Um, I most, the question is, I mostly see the convenient spit and run or shoot and scoot attitude in conversations or debates related to Hinduism, which is mostly around mythology. So how does an intellectual Kshatriya defend in such a situation? I guess you probably want to add something to Well, no, I think, yeah, I mean, I've already discussed it. I mean, there is a shoot and scoot, like, uh, come on, we shoot, and then uh, my response may be systematic, and, and then they run or they dodge. But I don't, I, now with the social media and the internet, I can write a 12-page response, uh, you know, for two or three of Ganesh's points. And, and he's got 25 of them. So I'm going to write quite a few. He can't run away. I, I, I have enough, uh, enough of my following who will make sure that the matter gets heard. And then we take it. So the, the problems are not only the sepoys working for the other side. It's also in shooting. It's also in shooting. Some of it is good if it's required. If, if I have to take on somebody who I feel is betraying, then it's fine. But let's be clear on who is doing what, who is doing good work and who is betraying, and not uh, have jealousy because somebody feels that I may have done something and he ought to have done it. You know what I'm saying? So we have some, in, we have some internal people also who need to be taken to task. And the next question is more, uh, it revolves around the theme of this book. It's a long question. What is the most important task in this battle for Sanskrit? That is, where should the focus be? In knowing the other side and giving a response or critique? Or spreading Sanskritam and knowledge of scriptures so that more and more are aware of it and don't rely on the other side, which then does not get traction? That is, expanding that in the insider base. There are many that agree that there is a need to counter this narrative, etc., but have differences on the but they have differences on the approach, manner, and other details that go in. How do you plan to handle this? Should all this be based on a common, minimum, agreeable framework where other differences can coexist? Okay, I think I understand the question. So, if you want to plant a garden, you have to do both positive things and negative things. It's not enough to just do positive things like plant some roses without pulling out the weeds. You know, it's fun to say, we have roses plant, we plant all these nice roses, but it's the dirty work of pulling out the reeds and getting rid of them is I don't want to do. Your garden won't survive. You have to plant the positive, but you have to zap the negative. So, taking on, criticizing, attacking the negatives is like pulling out the weeds. Teaching Sanskrit, positive ideas, having bhajans, having yagnas is the positive. So, one is not enough without the other. If you just pull out weeds and keep attacking them, you have to plant new roses also. So, Sanskrit Bharati as an organization doing good positive things is very necessary, very necessary. And then somebody who's taking on the negatives and those who are attacking us and take them back, give them responses, he's the one who's pulling out the weeds. He's also very necessary. To be healthy, you need good nutrition and good diet. But if, there's a, if the cancer has gone into many organs already, 
if there are diseases that have gone into many places or already in the body, you have to take those steps to get rid of them. Just eating vitamins won't necessarily cure the cancer. You see, after it's gone beyond a certain stage. Maybe we could have prevented it if these things never happened. But the disease is in a very advanced stage, I would submit to you. So I would say that while good organizations doing positive things are necessary, you also need the tough Kshatriya types who are going and fighting this. So you need both. It's not either or. And they have to work together. They should not be arrogant and say, who are you? I know more about this. I know more about flowers. Why are you coming and uh, pulling out the weeds? The point is, the guy planting flowers does not know what is a weed. He doesn't even know how to recognize. He doesn't know which weed has to be killed in what way. Because they're not all the same kind. You see, the different kinds of weeds, they have to be addressed in a different way. So the problem like Ganesh has is, he's planting the rose is great. But he must know that there are some other people who understand the weeds and understand the insects and the pests and all the different people who come and destroy the crop. And so they have to also be brought in to do their job and work together. So this teamwork of different kind of specialists is needed. And, and, and I like the, this idea of minimum common issue, minimum common framework. I have proposed, I have in fact proposed that we ought to have a, a minimum common standard, a minimum like an ISO standard. What are the checklist of things that everybody should, comply, should accept in order to join this loose network. And then they can be very diverse, they can do whatever they want. Like in Christianity, they have the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed says that there's one God, and they had only one son, and there was this uh, you know, uh, original sin, everybody's condemned to go to hell, and this one son comes and he had this, uh, you know, he was sacrificed uh, on your behalf, then he resurrected, and now you can be saved only through him. This is a nutshell of the core doctrine. Every church must accept that. And in many rituals, they read it out loudly in the church. So other than that, there are many denominations, they can do all kinds of things. You know, some are pro this, some are anti that, they fight each other. But there's a certain minimum common understanding they have called the Lysine Creed. Muslims have a minimum common understanding of their tenets. So, and there are many groups fighting each other. So we need a loose architecture, an open architecture that allows a lot of flexibility, but we need certain tenets and certain principles of uh, compliance that all of us should adhere to. So that is a challenge that has to be developed. I have proposed it many times. And this minimum common should not be just philosophical, religious type of ideas, but also taking on the Kurukshetra. It should include what is our responsibility in the Kurukshetra. And it should say very clearly, you cannot on the one hand be saying, I'm, I'm a great bhakt and I'm a great uh, person in my dharma, and at the same time funding the wrong people. You can't do that. But that tendency or that weakness is there in our, in our, among our people. Because we like to see MIT should have a building with my name on it. You know, that kind of a thing. We want to see that. Uh, I guess in purity complex. Yes, that is correct. That is well said. That well brings us to the... Yes. Yes. Because of inferiority complex. Yeah. Yeah. This business of... Uh, so that now I've got to go up the, up the ladder into a high class. I've got to get a seat at the table in the high class and buy my way at the table. Even though they may make a... Even though it's just money and they know that otherwise I'm nobody. So that brings us to the last question. Actually, uh, three questions that uh, touch the same uh, 
topic. So what's your concrete advice for people in this room who have passion for Sanskrit and Sanskriti but have limited time? What can and should we do at our level to make an impact in reviving Sanskrit and stop pollution of our Sanskriti by vested interest groups? The second question is, how does a small person like me, untrained in Sanskrit studies, contribute? And third question by Shika, as a common person, what is my role? Okay, so all these are, I get flooded with emails all the time saying, uh, you know, long introduction on how great you are, how well, person's bio data, what, how hard working he is. And the, I start reading them from the bottom up. Uh, because at, at, at the end it says, okay, now what do I do? How do I help you? So the thing is that uh, the person has forgotten to tell me what is his capability. Because it depends on his capability. I mean, if he's got money, he can help us. Fund, he can fund a project. And this Pool Paksha conference we are doing, every one of those scholars needs to be sponsored. Because they have traveled, they need some stipend. So a person can say, I'll sponsor 10 scholars. That and uh, towards your thing, you know, like they, the church says we sponsor a child or something like that. So a person can say I'll sponsor a kshatriya. Okay, somebody can do that. Uh, if somebody says that, look, I can, I am a very good uh, filmmaker. I'll come and make a documentary on each one of your books. I love it. Uh, or I have, uh, I actually have about a thousand hours of uh, footage of events and talks like this. And I've told so many people who are filmmakers that, you know, come on, take all this and make some uh, thematic uh, things out of it. Organize it into some lessons and so on. It takes some funding, but it also takes some talent. Then there are people who could translate these things. I have so many hundreds of blogs. Uh, they could translate them into Marathi and Hindi and whatever, all these different kind of languages. Or they could go to, through the videos. Some of these videos have tens of thousands of views each. And they could put subtitles on them. That would be very useful. There, are, there, are, there is work like uh, social media. People could help us out in more actively in the social media. If they don't have too much time, they can certainly do that much. So there are people who could do web design. There are, there are uh, this intellectual Kshatriya Academy. We love to go and start out a nice, impressive cloud-based system, a service. So, so that has to, some work has to go. So I think it depends on the person should have more than just good intentions. They should also, they are the best person who, who can define what precisely they can do. Not only the type of work, but quantify it. And very solid commitment, not let us down by, I have so many projects that have failed because a lot of people took them over and then they didn't do it, they got tired, they lost interest, you know, there's, there's more work than they thought and that moment of uh, enthusiasm is gone. So in, in a moment, I mean, there's so many people who raise their hand and say, I'll do this and that for you and then they're gone. So I would say all three questions uh, are wonderful. We appreciate them, thank them. Uh, but the, you need to come up with what you can do, what are your capabilities uh, as they relate to our need, and what is the quantification of your commitment. And, and that, that is how uh, a person should approach it. Thank you so much, all of you.